Hello and welcome to UX Research Geeks. I'm your host, Tina Lichkova, a researcher and a strategist, and this podcast is brought to you by UX Tweak, an all-in-one UX research tool. This is the ninth episode of UX Research Geeks, and it's also the first part of the digital healthcare special, where we invited four beautiful guests, true experts on this topic, which you will have a chance to listen to in the next two months. As the first guest in the series, we spoke to James, a human technologist and human-centered researcher. His works explore areas where businesses, technology, and design merge together to impact digital services, people, and society. James's studio work is driven by inclusive and equitable practices in care delivery, lowering barriers to access to novel, life-saving digital health services and tools. In this episode, we spoke about how to do inclusive and possibly bias-aware research, how he did research in the times of corona, as well, what is the fear of finding out. If you want to find out more, tune in. Hello, James. Hi. Hello. <laughs> Let's start with the essential question, uh, because you're a very interesting person. So I would like to start with who are you and what you are actually doing? Okay. So, um, well, I can give you a little bit of my, a little bit of my background. So I'm a UX researcher and a service designer, and I lead a studio. I actually run an agency called Yumi Sui, and it's a Berlin-based company. Um, we operate in the EU, the UK, and the US market. And, but personally about me, um, you know, I've been working in the field of digital, I would say working in the field of UX research and service design for the past 12 years. So in my work, I've worked with digital health startups, pharmaceutical companies, community-based care, and inpatient and outpatient settings in the US and in primarily in the EU. And right now with UMES, we, we are working with um, different kinds of groups to explore inclusive, equi- inequitable practices in care delivery, lowering barriers to access, and um, novel and to explore novel life-saving digital health solutions and tools. So that's what the working background is. But my my personal background, I'm a you know, I'm an African American male from originally from Boston. Uh, grew up all over uh, the East Coast, and you know, went to art school. <laughs> left art school, and okay. you know, studied study a little bit of cultural anthropology, and you know, design research, and really got my um, you know, and really kind of learned a lot about the the how people, the kind of the the behind the scenes about how products and services actually work. And then I decided to move to Europe a few years ago, where I've been working um, as a UX researcher and service designer. Mm-hmm. And how how did it happen that you are now working in the field of digital healthcare? I would say I would call myself a, a human technologist. So I see user experience research and digital and service design as just tools. They're just tools that are being applied. Mm-hmm. But one of the things that kind of keeps me up at night are the questions around what happens when humans and technology meet? How do people, how are people's reality changed and affected by new technologies that come into their daily lives? You know, um, what happens when, you know, people who can't participate in this future fall through the cracks? And these things have kind of have led me to the digital health arena. So, you know, a good example is like food delivery. 
I, I th so just step, stepping out of uh, digital health for one quick second and looking at full delivery as like a very simplified example. Um, it's a high level of convenience, but in the end, someone pays the price when your ravioli arrives within 10 minutes or your, you know, your, uh, your zucchini arrives in 10 minutes. Um, the thing is, is that it gets a bit more trickier when you look at the digital health aspect because with, and, and also with care delivery, you know, applying these kinds of new models and new technology to um, increase better care outcomes, you know, the, the idea is that it's not always clear where someone pays the price. And you have to kind of look at it from a different set of perspectives, which makes it a bit more stickier and trickier. Um, so in, in the, in my, and so the thing is, is that through digital health, I work in a lot of disease specific topics and areas. So I look in things like, um, you know, challenges that both patients and I mean, that challenges that uh, both patients and healthcare providers are dealing with within the with health in terms of, you know, how healthcare systems apply those type of rules, um, you know, looking at what type of barriers are there, how barriers can be lowered. The goal is to either string together a series of products sometimes create a new product or service. But the idea is that it's about really lowering the barriers uh, to deliver the right kind of care for the right kind for the different kinds of people that are out there. Mm -hmm. So what I would say is that it's more about identifying where people can potentially fall through the cracks. So when you mm -hmm. bring surface design and user experience research together and you look at it from a place where people fall through the cracks, oftentimes they can be the most vulnerable people. So in our work, like we definitely see signs where um, there are, you know, chronic diseases are, you know, are out there. They're silent killers. Patients don't even notice the kind of damage that's being done until it's too late. And usually what happens is that um, the outcomes can be worse for those who are most vulnerable. So we're looking at people of color. We're looking at immigrants elderly people, those who have a precarious socioeconomic status. And we look at how we can um, make those, lower those barriers and, you know, reduce those, reduce those negative outcomes for those groups of people. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I'm thinking because this topic comes out in many other fields. It's, it's a social phenomenon, right? Yeah. Yeah. And I'm thinking about if you could maybe uh, even teach us or tell us what is the current situation either in the US or in Europe, why these groups mm -hmm. are not so taken into account and what is actually how it's in reality that the healthcare system isn't really working for them. Yeah, I mean, I think that if we think about it in a way in which traditional care has been built, um, there are a few kind of key factors. So one key factor is in medical books, you only have the appearance of sometimes people of color only when it comes down to things like STDs. So looking at things like skincare or dermatology, or even just how uh, certain kinds of diseases appear on people who have brown or dark or black skin, it's, it's almost a guess for a uh, healthcare provider. Mm -hmm. On the other side of it is, is that when we look at traditional care models, we also look at things like non-compliant patients. This, in a lot of the work that I do, I see a lot of uh, <laughs> outcomes come out to, hey, that patient was non-compliant or they just wanted to die. And the reality of it is that that non-compliance is, I don't think people actually really wanna die. I don't think people 
will go to a doctor and sit there and maybe be passive with the, the suggestion that's being given to them and do nothing. I actually believe that the the healthcare systems or the times that's being that's being spent with patients is too little, and there's not enough support to actually be delivered to patients to um, look at what their socioeconomic problems are and help them in places where a doctor cannot. So this is where it becomes a little bit more of um, a, a really struggling foundation there. And then when you apply certain approach like digital health solutions on top of a already crumbling system, you actually end up not seeing those vulnerable groups that are on the outside that are, you know, oftentimes not a reflection of the of the team that's actually building that product itself. So I would say in a lot of my experience, I go into digital health units, startups, uh, innovation labs, and to put it bluntly, I quickly notice that there are very few people that look like me. But the idea of, you know, being able to acknowledge the fact that people do fall through the cracks, um, even before a solution can go public, can also can actually mean the difference between an effective product in the market and not having a very effective product in the market. So I think the idea is that when I come in, I talk about things like diversity, ethics, and inclusion, and it makes people very uncomfortable. Actually, it makes me uncomfortable talking about it. Uh, with a with with a group, oftentimes <laughs> in a in a situation where all of my stakeholders or all the partners around me, um, you know, don't know how to begin with that discussion. It's, this is something that I see not only in the United States; I see it also in Europe as well. Mm -hmm. And I invite them to explore it with me, to be very uncomfortable with me as we explore these areas. Um, and it's again not just looking at the constraints of the patient, but also looking at the constraints of the care provider. So the person who's providing care in that healthcare system. If you have a primary care physician that only averages 12 minutes per patient, who maybe has type 2 diabetes and possibly chronic kidney disease, how can the illness be managed or that or the underlying illnesses be managed within a short period of time? It's very complex and it's not really a simple solution that can be applied. And so these things require a level of patience. They require a level of outward thinking, thinking in a completely different way, and also thinking about the kinds of people who who struggle with these constraints. Mm -hmm. And going back, for example, because this is a really good example of the non-compliant patient. And that uh, mm -hmm. we, when we mm -hmm. had our kickoff call, it also took my attention. Uh, if you maybe could tell what is a non-compliant patient and how, what I'm interested in, because bringing this into the discussion uh, is a big thing and i would be also interested how do you bring news in uh, like this to the audience of your clients who are not such a diverse crowd or maybe not also right. not such an inclusive crowd. right so non-compliance is a very tricky thing it could be a variety of definitions so medical adherence meaning that someone is not taking their medication on time oftentimes when we look deeper it could be the fact that the person can't afford that medicine or struggle to get to the pharmacy to um, fulfill that prescription. Not every healthcare system has um, available medicines that are free or subsidized by the state. So you'll have different barriers that are there when it comes down to that level of compliance. But you also have things like misappointments. Misappointments could mean no money for transportation, other priorities like raising children. Mm -hmm. 
um, or also a little bit of fear going into the doctor's office. So the thing is, is that when you, these are things that are kind of unseen. They're not easy to survey. They're not really easy to quantify or in a single 30 minute uh, discussion with a patient or one hour discussion with a patient. It's something that's a little bit more deeper that you have to really look at, at how people navigate through an existing, I would say an existing care journey. So what we do is we work a lot with like planning out these care journeys and putting lots of different kinds of patients through them to show which ones are most likely to fall out. How, what is the percentage or what, what is the likelihood of that based upon uh, interviews with physicians, interviews with uh, hospital administrators, interviews with patients themselves. And actually there's this one extra thing I want to throw in there. Mm -hmm. So COVID came along a couple of years ago and it really rocked the UX research world. It made it very hard for researchers to really go out into the field and really understand what was going on. We relied heavily yeah. on video calls. Mm. Already with that, it creates a barrier. So you may not be able to meet with that ideal patient, primarily because they may not have access to, they may not be a participant in that pool that you're, that you're pulling from. It could be that they don't even have access to uh, solid working um, internet infrastructure, which to be honest, we still, people all over the world are really still struggling with that. Even in the Western world, we're are, are deeply struggling with that. And so the thing is, it's like, you may not be able to clearly get to the kind of person or the kinds of people you may need in order to, I would say, make that connection happen to understand what's going on in the market and understand the nuances that are there. Mm -hmm. And I think that takes a lot more than just a couple of interviews. It takes a lot more observation, takes a lot more time spent. Mm -hmm. And how did you do it in the COVID times? How did you work on finding out what yeah. is the... the <laughs> what I, I just started to watch the second series of New Amsterdam. And uh, uh, okay, throwing now away that it's a white dude uh, trying to save the world, and he's just like, <laughs> which is which is probably not recommended. It shouldn't be in this message of this uh, a TV show, and it's just a project. Uh -huh. like uh, but I, I just, I just, I just had this uh, visual in my head: you being the uh, how can I help uh, uh, type. Of, but coming into the commercial space uh, and asking your clients and how can you help to find out these problems and how did you do it? Because, I mean, the barriers, even for researcher in other topics, were in COVID quite mm, big. Yes. And here it's just, as, as you named, there is a lot of reason why it was hard. Mm, how did you approach mm. it? Yeah, it was hard, actually. I think when we were first hit down with, we were first hit with the first lockdowns, we had to cancel all of our interviews. Uh, I think at this point in time, we were focusing on the US and the UK market for a particular product that was based mm -hmm. in Germany. And we had to come up with a whole new game plan. I think that it was very surprising for everyone. But one of the things that we were that we were that I was exploring at the time was the delivery of of rapid testing, or I would say like what, what we would call rapid testing at the very beginning of COVID, where someone would be would suspect they have COVID, they would go into a test center, get a test, and be told the test results. And 
one of the things based upon obviously some some of our past research, we knew that people really struggle when finding out the answer of a diagnosis. And at the very beginning stages of COVID, people were really struggling with being stigmatized, especially people of color, Asian people, elderly people, um, even even mm-hmm. being told they may they may die from what they have. So the, again, this is early days. This is not now. It's much it's much different now. But one of the things that we did notice was the delivery of the diagnosis was done in a way that confused a lot of people. That for some groups that we were looking into could have pushed them to harm to to self harm if they had gotten the, a, a poor diagnosis. So looking at the entire end-to-end approach to that, we had to look at those kind of key signals and kind of key flags of where there could be potential misunderstanding or people running away with the wrong information. And what we did is after we did some of, after we did, after we had some actual um, diagnoses delivered, we were able to get interviews with some of the patients, obviously anonymously, some of the patient groups anonymously, and really chat to them about how the diagnosis was delivered, what their fears were, what their challenges were. These are things that we couldn't normally see on, that we couldn't, um, that we would be able to see more on the ground had we had more of a deeper connection with that particular patient, but we were struggling as well. It really, it really made it hard for us to really identify um, where where were the barriers? What were, were patients not wanting to hear based upon their age group and their, and their socioeconomic status and their background? But it, gathering that amount of information really helped us understand more about that and to kind of, in a way, move towards it. But we had to do it continuously. We couldn't just do it with a few people. We had to kind of keep on checking on the tool, keep on checking on um, the kinds, the way in which the diagnosis was delivered and so on. Now, as the pandemic is subsiding and things becoming more flexible, I really encourage researchers to go out there and really observe and meet the people that that they're that they're that will ultimately benefit from the product that they're creating and i think that the important thing about it is that yes remote testing has been has become a good standard now it's totally changed the way we do research but now that we're kind of in this new space we have a we have an obligation to really really see the people that we're working with um i would say that i have to be honest i wasn't completely 100 confident in the quality of the products that we were creating during the early days of the pandemic, things were quite slow. And mm-hmm. after things changed where there were less restrictions, going back and reassessing based upon the people who were using it, the outcomes that were there, the data that was collected helped us make to helped us enhance the products more down the line, which I think was really important. So yeah, I, I could say like, yeah, there's no there was no easy way with remote testing. We everyone had to do it. That was the uh, that was the only way you can have trust with your patients, or I'm sorry, trust with the patient groups. Mm-hmm. But as things are changing now, I think it's really important to really go out there and to really, really do the field work. And to really do the field work, how mm-hmm. does it look like? Because I never had a chance to work in or, or mm-hmm. uh, in exactly healthcare. Uh, and it's such a, and you were talking, we were talking also about the diagnosing, which I have a question about that as well, oh, yeah. mm-hmm. maybe later on, but, uh, 
how do you do because it's very intimate it's your health it's your health data it's it's not exactly the fun time of your life when you're sick or trying to find out what kind of sickness you have so how do you approach people even when interviewing or being out Mm -hmm. there in the field what does it mean a a lot of questions right now i know (laughs) (laughs) do you do go to a hospital and just like you know um say oh could sir could you please talk to me how does it look like yeah well um you know luckily um luckily i have got really really good connections with different kinds of care settings so that allows me and the teams that i'm working with to you know it's obviously small groups usually there's two or three of us and we wear lab coats and we will go into waiting rooms and observe Um, At times, the patients will be told that there will be people observing. So they have, you know, they can comply to that, especially when we do observations inside of a consultation session. Mm -hmm. I think when it comes down to really talking with different kinds of groups, it is oftentimes, um, I I would say one of the more interesting accounts that I've had is when I've worked in um, hospitals that are in inner cities. Because hospitals mm-hmm. in inner cities, they, they, they tend to attract a variety of people moving in and moving out, almost like a train station. If you've ever sat for 20 minutes in a, in, a, in a public hospital, not even in a waiting room, but in the lobby of a hospital, you see so many kind of walks of life, so many walks of life coming in and out of that, of that setting. And we were, I remember we, we, had, we had launched this intervention um, that was a bit of a booth where we wanted to get a sense of the overall sentiment of people and some of their challenges as they were passing through parts of the hospital. So, you know, we gave them, we had a small incentive. We told them, hey, you know what? We will not collect any, um, your name or any particular kind of data um, that would be used to identify you. But we want to be able to have a small conversation with you and explore a few topics. And in the end, we we had exchanged um, their, uh, their small time, which is always 15 minutes with either candy or, uh, Amazon voucher or some kind of, um, Mm -hmm. incentive for them to, to stay engaged with us. And oftentimes you just heard really interesting stories where you can actually start taking groups and classifying them based upon the experience they just had or the experience they're going to have in the hospital. And a lot of people are very open. I think the goal with, these groups is always to move beyond the complaints and talk more to the experiential feelings that they may be having. So mm-hmm. in, in those settings, you deal with people who are elderly. You're dealing with people who are uh, a lot of people of color who are moving through that space. You're dealing with people who have, um, who are, who have disabilities and maybe have various social economic statuses. And these are people that you're never going to get in a user pool uh, on, on an online user pool. They're just, you're just not going to get them. But these kinds of people are the ones who can benefit the most from the kind of intervention that you can have. And so this is where we really, um, I would say the, uh, it, it's tough, especially with building trust, especially when it comes down to shadowing in a, in a clinical setting or in a um, shadowing in a, in a consultation. But there is a different kind of dimension there where you um, can find places where you can engage with people and, and, and learn from them and learn about them. Mm-hmm. And maybe 
because this is you, you mentioned it's 15 minutes talking to them and i can imagine that uh some people are like sick and they want to you know somehow filter their emotions so it's yeah. the components yeah. you were talking about uh mm -hmm. then there's the shadowing which we know an observed object uh, right. behaves differently and then you mm -hmm. were mentioning the rules so maybe the setup the physical setup of how you do it is what i'm yeah the physical setup is a really attractive to people i think also coming up with novel ways to approach people we <laughs> even if it's about creating a board game that mm -hmm. outlines a person's journey of how they navigate from, you know, a screening to a diagnosis. What are the things that they would put in? What are the things that they would change? How would they move along and how they would, how would they deal with different scenarios? These are some tools that we've applied when working with different kinds of patient groups. I, I, you'd be surprised. I've, I've worked with, I've worked with uh, patients who are, um, I, I, and, um, I would say like a good example is I worked with, I worked with a company that wanted to develop, that was developing a diagnosis app and they were very interested in, uh, something called differential diagnosis. So that is when you have a comorbidity like hypertension, maybe obesity or type two diabetes, does the, does the, does the tool give you information when you're, maybe when your foot hurts, can it tell the difference between when something is just you know, you stub your toe or you've got a little bit of muscle pain or when it's something that's more severe, that's related to your comorbidity. So how do we manage that? And we noticed that it would benefit people who were, um, who were more, who knew a little bit less about their certain situation, but relied heavily on doctor's advice. So what we were doing is we were exploring how do people who are between the ages of 65 all the way up to, I think we talked to someone who was 90 years old. And how does this group, how do they make decisions and how do they manage that kind of advice? Not to say that this is a, that, that we were delivering a diagnosis, but with that kind of advice, what are the things that they would like to know when it comes down to managing uh, their managing and making decisions about whether they should go to see a doctor or if they go to see a doctor, how do they explain their complaints all the way down to, you know, is it, is it just, is it just me or is it something to do with my pre-existing condition? So there, there's, there are, there are a lot of kind of different ways in which we can explore this kind of feedback by creating different kinds of simulations. And oftentimes they have to be offline. They have to be a bit analog in order to really bring those groups in. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I'm still amazed by the fact because it might be that some people will be, will be listening and they're like 15 minutes with a person. 15 minutes is very short. And obviously you can't get a deep impression on one particular person within a 15 minute interview. Um, but sometimes there are a few key questions that you can ask that can give you a little bit of an insight into their daily life or how they're experiencing their, a, a, a current, their, their current clinical setting. And I think that that is enough to start with. It's not the answer, but it's enough to kind of it's enough to kind of pull a little bit of data to start with. Mm -hmm. The thing is, is that people can be people in these settings are oftentimes very busy and they're trying to move from one place to another. Sometimes people want to stay for 30 minutes. Sometimes they want to stay even longer. But I think 15 minutes is always a for us for that particular project was 
a good way to gauge a little bit of sentiment about that particular about the, the about that particular clinical space that we were working in. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm also a fan of like doing a guerrilla because when you have a very powerful question, sometimes even one minute is enough uh, yeah. to to gather some insight or indication of what we should look more into. But it's interesting that even this 15 minutes in such a big topics and healthcare topics makes such a difference. Uh, when I'm thinking further about it, it's uh, it's the question, and I, I will use these, the argument of elderly generation of like, you know, oh, you know, I'm colorblind. I don't see rays. And, uh, which I know it's coming from a good place, but it's not exactly uh, how we should look at things. And uh, but how do you make sure to work inclusively in such setups and to mm-hmm. really look at the differences coming from the social and economic statuses, from the racial uh, biases that we all could have? Yeah. So, I mean, bias, essentially, that that's what it is. It's exploring bias. So bias is mm. real. Even if you're on a product team, bias is there. You can't, <laughs> it's, 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 I'm, I'm trying to figure out how I can best uh, explain this, but I think when it comes down to, um, when it comes down to it, acknowledging the fact that there are biases and being, and actually, I would say calculating for that level of error that would be inside of that. So what I always think is it's not about just spending that one-off time with that group or those individuals that maybe would be a target focus patient, or I'm sorry, a targeted uh, patient group, um, but spending more and more time with them. I think also in terms of managing bias, it's also looking at diversity inside of teams. So not to say that all product teams have to be a match, a mix of every kind of person on the planet. I mean, that would be great. But when I'm what we do is we, what I do is I always encourage to drop a lot of expertise. Oftentimes with expertise and having a lot of the same kinds of people in terms of the same mindset inside of product teams, you really struggle with biases. It may be, it's always a good idea to have people from different walks of life connected to those teams, even if it means that every month there's always just a session with um, a new group of people that could potentially benefit from that product that are just very different from the people you've already spoke to. I think also, um, and, and that the idea of really really connecting to the to product teams. I'm sorry, really connecting product teams to the outside real world instead of being in a theoretical lab based system or setting can also be incredibly important. So there there are a lot of different factors there to kind of get around bias, but the reality of it is that this is inherently a human thing. We will never really get over our personal biases because we have personal experiences, but to understand that they're out there, to understand that your the product that you're creating or that service you're creating could be biased or the kind of group or the kind of uh, groups that you decide not to um, include in your uh, in your testing or to not include in your early discovery work, um, they could that that could be a bias. So it's hard. It takes mm-hmm. time, and I think that with product teams, it's yeah. There, there's this McDonald. I would call it the 
I'm sorry, I don't want to, <laughs> I want to call it the fast foodization of product development, where there mm -hmm. is a set of rules, people um, adapt product development to these kinds of parameters and rules, and they come out with an MVP. But with, but with, but with digital health, it's far more complex than that. And much more time is, needs to be spent. And um, checking in one, with one's own personal biases is incredibly important. I'm, I'm curious also about, you know, you have a client, you are in a very complex area, mm -hmm. uh, which affects people's life. I mean, if we, if we, if we don't work so exclusively in an IT project, I don't think it's going to cause such a harm as in healthcare. Mm. Uh, and then you have clients when, which you described the teams might not be so diverse. Uh, and how do clients take the information or how do they respond to you coming and telling them you have bias, let's work on your bias. <laughs> I, I would love to say that I don't work with clients that don't agree that uh, diversity and inclusion are key to our key mm -hmm. principles to product development. I, I would say, I would love to say that, but that's not true. I've had some hard nuts to crack, but especially with dealing with high level stakeholders who really struggle to understand why it would make sense to either open up a scope of a project or open up the kinds of, or to actually look at a group that maybe they would feel would be too small. So I can definitely say that the African-American population in the United States is made up of uh, only, it's around 20%, give or take, of the U.S. population. I would say it would be smaller in other Western European countries as well. But when you start adding that to the growing uh, Latin American um, population, when you start seeing it growing to the growing Asian population, it does, those numbers really do show there's a potential to look at things a little bit differently. So one, one great example that I have is when I talk about dermatology. Um, dermatology is a really interesting mm -hmm. arena. Right now, you see a lot of books that are on dermatology that give kind of a one side of a story. You know, we have examples of very pale skin. So when a dermatologist is working with a person of color, they really struggle to identify what that skin condition is. And I always bring up great examples. I always bring good, solid examples into the room. So, you know, in the UK, I think it was in 2020, there was a medical student called uh, Malone Mukwinde, and he founded a, a tool called blackandbrownskin.co.uk. And it's a product that showcases clinical skin conditions and disease, skin diseases in uh, black and brown skin. And it also helps patients navigate towards dermatologists who specialize in uh, darker skin. So the idea is that it, in a way, it helps medical students see the different kinds of patterns, different kinds of lesions and moles, different kinds of skin conditions that can appear uh, in people of color that normally would go unnoticed, but also helps those who are in need actually find a way to care. And I think that when I bring these things together, I talk about it, it, it. It's not just about the fact that it's about helping out the smallest group of people who may be unseen, but there is there are opportunities to monetize within those areas as well. And I think that working with those kind of constraints are create a far more interesting and robust tool that relates to the idea that um, 
you know, of what of the promise of digital health and also its ability to scale more so than going for a uh, a skincare tool that or a skin health tool that only focuses on existing photos from a medical textbook. Mm-hmm. So that's the thing. It's like, you know, really bringing those in and saying, hey, these are the other ways in which we can help more people. These are the ways in which we can also still monetize and scale with that as well. But it can only be done if we start looking at the world as, you know, a little bit differently. Mm. And you are now working also, as you mentioned it uh, briefly, on a project that is uh, looking into a specific kidney disease, which is also really hard to diagnose, as I understood. Can you maybe explicate a little bit more? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I am working on a project that's focusing on chronic kidney disease. It's a very big topic now in the United States. It's actually a really big topic globally, um, primarily because it's a silent killer. It doesn't have the kind of symptoms that you would normally see with other, with some chronic illnesses. It's something that is preventable and with early intervention is maintainable, doesn't necessarily have to lead to dialysis. But one of the things that we do see with CKD is that the diagnosis is done too late. So a patient who is, you know, who feels healthy, who, you know, is doing their, is living their life, moves to another state, goes in for an exam when they meet a new doctor and the doctor says, you may have, you have, Uh, a higher level of chronic kidney disease. You may need dialysis at some point in time soon. This can be a shocker. This can be devastating to people. Um, So it's tough. And the idea is that if people, uh, if we're looking at it, we're saying something like nine out of of 10 people um, in the United States with chronic kidney disease don't even know that they have it. So it's oftentimes deprioritized. And with that, we also see that there are vulnerable groups who really struggle with getting that particular care. So those outcomes could be worse for those other vulnerable groups who are usually, you know, by the by the side, you know. So we're looking at things like, um, you know, people who are oftentimes labeled as non-compliant because of their socioeconomic status. Mm. We're looking at different people who may be struggling with language or medication management or a variety of other mental health issues that could keep them from um, getting that right kind of care. And so they're oftentimes left alone with their uh, chronic condition. Mm-hmm. The, the area that we're focusing on is looking at how do we keep people from ending up on dialysis, essentially. And dialysis is, a, is in the United States is a very big business. Uh, and, you know, I'm working on this project with a EU-based company. And so we're looking at all these different options, all these different alternatives. And I think that, um, mm-hmm. you know, one of the things that we've really kind of focused on was you know, health literacy was a big aspect in terms of helping us address this, but also the idea of nudging through leveraging behavioral science as a way of behavioral science as a way of helping us steer certain patients to um, more timely and, and higher quality outcomes as well. As we are doing this special uh, in summer for healthcare, uh, all I hear, and we, we will talk, we are talking with you, starting with you, and we'll talk with three other health experts uh, or digital health experts. Uh, there is two topics are coming up, and you just mentioned one, and that's the behavioral change. 
And very simple question yeah. would be, why is that so important? It, the reason why it's important is because healthcare can't be managed by one person alone. As we've seen in the past with primary care physicians, they struggle with managing patients. And if you, and oftentimes what happens is that the end result is that patient is non-compliant and then they're overlooked. Getting patients involved to a certain level is going to be incredibly important. And that health literacy, that one thing that even can drive action to showing up to an appointment on time, to getting that kind of screening that's needed at the right time can be crucial. So the patient doesn't show up, they, there's not much a healthcare provider can do, but if we can look at other novel ways of engaging that patient, nudging them to um, at-home testing or other kinds of uh, in digital interventions that can be, um, that can that can get them to a diagnosis, then that really lowers that that barrier there. That really lowers the really lowers the bar. Um, but yeah, it can't be done alone. It really can't. And I think that this is where this is kind of where the promise of the digital health of digital health kind of comes in. You know, the idea of really kind of the, the idea of really engaging targeted patients and getting them to act and getting them to feel comfortable with act to, with acting. So building the kind of the right kind of trust that's there so they can trust those tools that are that they're using, um, making them affordable, making them easy to use and convenient. This is all going to this is all incredibly um, important to delivering those um, improved outcomes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And the second topic, which brings us a little bit back to what we already implied is the diagnosing. I, I, I don't think there is a moment in my life or okay, when I'm uh, freshly in love, maybe where I feel so vulnerable when being diagnosed with something. I remember uh, some situation from my life, mm -hmm. uh, from the life of my family members, uh, which affects you when you are actually in the process of diagnosing. You go to screening or you get some testings uh, and you're waiting for the diagnosis. And you perfectly frame this as fear of finding out. And this is where I would like to also know a little bit of your wisdom. How can digital health care specialists like you help in this area? Yeah, I mean, I think the fear of finding out is really, um, <laughs> it's a really funny term because I, it, it's something that comes from, um, actually that comes from banking. You know, after a shopping spree, people have a fear of finding out what their bank account is going to show them. And I think that you can deliver, you can transfer it, or there's an analog between that and finding out a diagnosis. So, you know, there are several dimensions of care that would need to acknowledge the different fears that people have. So it's something like uh, we have the fear of, an, of embarrassment and change, um, the fear of stereotypes. Um, or stereotypes related to treatment. You know, there's a fear of previous negative experiences that come along. So that means that that mental health services would have to be uh, deployed. And also the fear of just the treatment itself. So the idea is that it's a mix of psychological, experiential, perceptive, and situational um, dimensions there that would have to be addressed in order to, to support those fears. And to get people from that fight or flight situation, and essentially what it does, it it just lowers avoidance seeking behavior. So again, 
This is also how some patients are painted as non-compliant. Ones that have these fears, the fears of finding out, who have that avoidance-seeking behavior, oftentimes end up in a non-compliance scenario um, where they're going to need additional support and help. And not every healthcare system is equipped to deal with that. So there is a promise there. There's also something, there's also another aspect there of like, of how, of how, you know, health, you know, health, health literacy, nudging, um, these types of things that are appearing in the healthcare field that may have worked with, um, in more of a traditional setting when it comes down to, um, when we look at these kinds of things, that behavioral change can also support and lower those fears to create more compliance, to create more, to create less avoidance seeking behavior. Mm-hmm. I hope that answers your question. <laughs> yeah, it's it, 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 it's a really interesting f- uh, field because I, I, I personally think that um, fear can definitely drive a person to not um, follow up with a doctor. And a lot of people fall through the cracks. So many people uh, will fall through the cracks. And where we, where we see a lot of strategies that work against the fear of finding out is we obviously see it in oncology. So a lot of cancer um, uh, treatment and a lot of cancer screening. Um, there's a lot of uh, over-communication. But when it comes down to diagnoses for conditions that are not necessarily felt or fully seen, that still can be life-threatening. Um, different kinds of approaches and nudges definitely need to be there. The promise of digital health could help change these things as long as it's open enough and looking to different mindsets that are out there to get people to take those first steps in order to take it and and even to take an action. Um, I think that this is really where the, uh, the beauty of digital health uh, can come in and really can, can really get, really get patients the kind of quality care that they need. And also give them a, you know, give them the, to improve that, those patient care outcomes and to lead to more equitable care delivery. I think that's where um, we can see the the best kinds of results. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Genius, to close it up with your wisdom, what would you say to anybody who wants to enter the digital healthcare space or is working in the digital healthcare space? What are the best practices? Yeah for working really inclusively. Yeah, so if- And building products, mm-hmm, sorry. Really. So if if I could, I would say if I could give a piece of advice to those working in the digital health field and they wanna to try to follow like ethical and inclusive practices, um, I always start with saying, hey, putting patients first is a good start. Um, you know, really that's, to, to, that should go without saying, but it's still, somewhat of a struggle. I think also understanding that the problems that that they're facing are really complex um, and there's no quick solution. So you may not get to to a solution within 12 weeks, but you could take a strong step towards one type of solution that can lead to several kinds of positive outcomes. Speaking continuously with people is really important. So the people, not just the people who receive the care, but also the people who deliver the care. And what I always say is when you're ever developing a product, always bake three key points in. Uh, one of them is accountability. So it's not just about um, really holding, not just the, I mean, the idea is really holding the healthcare system, the healthcare provider accountable, but also to have that kind of be shared when it comes on decision-making. Data accountability is incredibly important. 
transparency, you know, as it leads to advances, as, as it leads to better advances in healthcare and health literacy. So what's happened is that, especially with the, with the uh, pandemic, as news, as, as different types of news has leaked out, and also it's kind of, I would say, mutated into other things, people really struggle with a level of trend, uh, understanding what, what the transparency is and also with their health literacy. And I actually think trust is a really important one. Trust can be hard to gain and it takes a really long time. And I think that's the, and that would be um, centered around really putting your patients first, spending a, spending time with them, really getting to understand them in, their, in the complex situation they're in. And lastly, I would always actually say, stay uncomfortable. Uh, being really uncomfortable with the subject matter is okay. It's, again, a lot of the people that maybe you're touching or you have the ability to, to support are going to be people you're, you may be uncomfortable with. Um, yeah. And I, I would say like, and, and I would say that this, and I would say that this kind of, these kind of principles or these kind of points really stick to, I don't know, I would say the reality of, or, the, or, or, or actually can give you a good foundation for a solid practice. James, where can people, listeners, follow you? Where can they uh, inform themselves about your work? Yeah, so right now um, I, have a, I have a website, uh, studioumesw.com. Also, they can, follow, they can also follow me on Twitter uh, under my name, James McKinnon, or under the studio Umesui. And um, yeah, and I think that's, and yeah, we'll be, I, I think what I'll be doing is in the near future, posting some uh, fun case studies around different approaches to bringing in diversity and inclusion and, and equity into digital Looking health. forward to that. Thank you very much for your time and for sharing the knowledge with us. Yeah, thank uh, you. Wishing you to stay healthy. <laughs> yeah, same to you. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to UX Research Geeks. If you liked this episode, don't forget to share it with your friends, leave a review on your favorite podcast platform, and subscribe to stay updated when a new episode comes out. This podcast was brought to you by UX Tweak, an all-in-one UX research tool. Thank you.